Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. So in this episode, we were joined by Dr. Jane Burns. Dr. Burns was the academic support lead for a number of years at Leicester Medical School until her recent retirement in early 2021. She's actually worked in academic support for over 15 years. And on this episode, she joined us to share her insights from having provided academic support to many, many students over many, many years. She also describes some of the struggles that students commonly report over the course of their degree and talks a little bit about the impact of the use of technology and social media. Now, before we begin, we're really excited to announce an exciting competition. The competition prize bundle we'll tell you a little bit more about towards the end of the episode. So do stay tuned to find out more and how you can enter. So without further ado, let's join the hosts, me, Lisa, the lecturer in medical education, uh, medical students, Elliot and Sophie, and our guest, Dr. Jane Burns. Welcome back and hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. How are we all? Very good, thanks. Fresh after an Easter break. We love it. Yeah. Have you been to any real shops yet? No, I, I, I went yesterday and I think at five o'clock and they'd all closed. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> 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 to to in for next week. <laughs> yes. Good idea. Brilliant. Well, um, we are really excited uh, on this episode to have another very special guest joining us, uh, Dr. Jane Burns. Uh, so Dr. Jane Burns is a, a colleague of, of, of mine and I've worked with her for a number of years uh, and I'm really, really pleased that she's been able to, uh, to spare us some time to join us uh, today. So Jane, if I could hand over to you maybe to just briefly share who you are and uh, your kind of route into the academic support role. Um, I'm second generation medic. Uh, so I uh, grew up on a next door to a GP surgery. We had the house and my dad uh, was always extremely interested in education. Um, I went to Manchester Medical School. I qualified in 1990 and that experience was a mixed bag. It was known at the time as the culling fields on the grounds that it would take out, take in a lot more students than it ever qualified. And quotes, if you couldn't hack it, they would happily kick you out. Support was not a word I ever heard during any of my time at Manchester. Now that's not to say that I wasn't exposed to some fantastic teachers. And I was both in my undergraduate and my postgraduate time, but I was also exposed to uh, teaching by humiliation, um, extreme bullying, um, and probably what you'd call nowadays sexual harassment. And um, the fact that some of these people who actually in many ways were quite good medics, but were so extraordinarily bad as teachers, early on made me realize we can train to be doctors. And we're expected to teach medical students from quite early on, but we're not don't have a God given right to be good teachers just because we've qualified as medics. And you actually have to do something about it. You have to think about it, read about it, talk to other people about it, plan about it. With with that that in mind, so obviously you said in your your own sort of personal journey through mm. 
as a medical student, you had little in the way of, of support being readily uh, available formally, I suppose. So is that what drew you towards the the academic support role that you've you've kind of been more formally involved with? I mean, how many years were you involved in academic support? I've been involved in academic support since 1995. And certainly I think it was a follow on from some of my experiences. So although I got a lot of support, it was from other medics in my family, my father, my brother. It was from some members of my tutorial group and then certain teachers that stood out. I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a GP. Um, and so I got onto a, a GP training scheme. And so after I'd done my GP training, which was all really in the South Manchester area. Um, I had one full start with a general practice in central Manchester, which was an interesting experience, but probably best for another day. Um, And then I went back and was offered a partnership at the place where I had done my training as a fifth year medical student. And again, the experience of that general practice was that teaching was important teaching was actually an honour and a privilege and something that you would not only expect to do but you should pay back to the help that you'd had before and certainly the general practitioners there were four in that practice who had all taught me and taught me well. Then we kind of get to the stage where the practice was um, associated with Manchester Medical School so that's where we got our students from. Um, And because my senior partners have been teaching a long time, they started to be given students who were resetting a year or were struggling. So we kind of got to be known as a place where we were sent what the med school would call difficult students, what we would call perhaps students who were struggling and struggling in a variety of different ways. So sometimes they were struggling valiantly in really difficult personal circumstances or with really difficult health issues or because they were dyslexic but nobody had picked it up and because we had these students on quite long attachments during their recent years we were able to build up a personal relationship with them I think if I'm being honest, at that very early stage of my academic support career, I was trying to decide, do I um, act all mumsy and be very encouraging? um, Or do I have to kind of push them really hard and kind of tell them to pull the thumb out and get stuck in? But when I think back to 1995, I was still very much thinking that I had to help them to work harder not necessarily about working smarter. And I think at that early stage was when I, in a a very basic way, started to try and do the academic formulation. What was it about the way that this student was um, trying to study that wasn't working well for them? Um, you know, and and that was my early experience uh, about academic support. And at that stage, I very much thought it was all about the one student and about that relationship between the student and the tutor. And although I think that's still a very important relationship, as time has gone on, 
I've realised that academic support is a much bigger, wider thing and has to involve really everybody who's teaching within a medical school. So the first thing we kind of wanted to ask you, Jane, was um, what are sort of the most common things that you see students struggling with? And maybe you could talk about that in the context of in the preclinical years and then in the mm. clinical years and how did, how did the difficulties change? Yes. Well, I think that once I had started to do background research and take information from other educationalists, and actually there's a lot of good information that's not by medics. And I think sometimes medics are a bit too snooty and not prepared to go out looking and see what excellent history teachers are doing or excellent PE teachers are doing. But because I then had a bit more information, it made it easier when I was talking to the students to try and work out where I thought the issue was and bounce that off and reflect it to the students. So certainly in the first years, there are some students who simply are not very well prepared for university anywhere with any course. They're struggling with those life skills. They're struggling with socialising, being away from home. Um, they're struggling with balancing their money. So that's one group of students where you need to be able to signpost them in ways to develop those life skills. Then there's um, another group of students who, and, and, and I would say this is probably the majority of the people I see in, or did see in first and second year, who are working incredibly hard often far too hard to the point of going to the library at six, not finishing till midnight, having absolutely no social life. And this was even before COVID. And these are people who have a way of studying, but they haven't adapted it to meet the needs of doing a medical course. And so for some of these students, it's gradually working with them to pick apart how they are preparing for a lecture, pick apart how they are behaving in a lecture and what they expect to get out of the lecture, um, to question them about why they're making copious notes that they never look at again, and then what they do after the lectures and how they start to collate all the information they might have had from the pre-reading, the lecture, the group work. And a thing that students I find are very poor at doing is reflecting on how the information they're being asked to assimilate is going to be assessed. So for a lot of students, when I ask them about a particular topic, they may be able to regurgitate paragraph four on page 53 but when I provide them with a small clinical problem that relates to the information they've learned, they don't seem to be able to utilise it in, in that way. And I think that's, um, that's probably the biggest group of students that their study skills are the biggest issue. Uh, and that's separate from perhaps a third group of students who either have motivational issues, perhaps mummy and daddy wanted them to be medics, they really would have rather gone to do astronomy uh, or physics or whatever it might be. And a small subset 
that have what I would call personality professionalism issues. And they're very similar to some of the heart sink patients you get in general practice who might come with their page of 15 problems. And as they read through their problems and you make suggestions as a GP, it's always yes, but that does sound a good idea. But I can't do that, doctor, because and for this group of students where they would contact me desperate for help and advice and hardly let me finish a sentence before they would be telling me why that was wrong for them or why their score for the exam was not fair or why what they were being asked to remember was not appropriate. So it's that whole range. And I think most of the research, most of the literature would say it's not unusual to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other. And certainly during COVID times, but well before COVID times, the big elephant in the room is how mental health issues interplay with students' ability to study, retain the information and stay focused and well. I think that can have particular impact in clinical year students when they're having to perform at a practical level. So that I do see students or over the years who have done not pass their written, but actually done very well in the written, but go to pieces every time they do a practical procedure um, or they do an OSCE performance. Particularly this last couple of years, working with um, another member of the academic support unit, uh, Dr. Khalid Kareem, um, his understanding of both dyslexia, but also dyspraxia was really interesting and he's got quite a few books and articles and just before I, I retired at the end of January we were looking at ways we could run workshops for the CSU staff, the clinical skills unit staff, but also maybe for some of the consultants um, in terms of teaching practical procedures to somebody who has difficulty doing up buttons or playing a piano and, and kind of getting the message across that it's a learning issue. It's not a lazy student. It's not somebody who's not trying. Um, and particularly then that interplay, if you're having difficulty with a practical skill and somebody is putting more and more and more pressure on you, the ability for you to perform just decreases. And that takes me back to some of the times when I was back at Manchester um, that, you know, teaching by humiliation. So some teachers not recognising that a student that they're talking to is about to burst into tears, you know, break down. To pick up on that is such an important aspect to thinking about academic support isn't it and, mm -hmm. you know if there is a student struggling with with learning actually reflect and think what what might be contributing to that you know is, is it that my learning techniques are not optimal problems with I don't really want to be here you know it, it very is much a sort of holistic approach isn't it in terms of whittling down actually multifactorial reasons why someone might be struggling with with, with keeping up with the sort of pace and demands of, of medicine 
And certainly when the academic support was first suggested at uh, Leicester Medical School, I'd been doing uh, support with students actually before the academic support unit was set up. But it was interesting that an awful lot of GPs were involved in setting up the academic support unit. And yet later on, when I talked to lots of really keen, really caring, uh, empathetic consultants, I think the difference was that when the students were placed in general practice, they were mostly placed with AGP in a room. And so there wasn't really anywhere to hide, but you also had a chance to develop a lot more personal relationship, hopefully a good rapport. And again, um, we did some workshops of, um, a few years back, myself and, and Dr. Gary Aram at the time, and we did some workshops to medical educators, making them think about, you might have had a student who's been with you for four weeks or six weeks, and then all of a sudden they're turning up late or they're turning up scruffy, or they're just not answering questions. And I think if you have a longitudinal relationship with a student, you're more likely to notice changes. Whereas if you're in a small pack of students, you know, there's always somebody who's standing at the back. And unless you're really careful as an educator, when you're teaching uh, small groups, people will get lost or get missed out. That's really helpful. Do you think that in the early clinical years, um, especially, students struggle to kind of self-identify when they're starting to have difficulties because, you know, there's less contact with, less consistent contact with um, educators that they know, or um, maybe they rotate around specialities before they ever build a rapport. And there's that, you know, we only have, some universities anyway might only have an exam at the end of the year instead of throughout the year and things like that. Um, yes, I think that the personal touch in medicine is very difficult to find anymore. Um, and that's not from want of trying. Um, there's a shortage of doctors. Uh, medical schools have been asked to extend, extend, extend the number of places they offer without um, the subsequent expansion of the numbers of staff. So I think the pressure put on the teachers has led to probably less and less contact in that personal way. I think academic support at Leicester and at many places used to be you get sent there by the medical school office because you failed an exam. And I really hated that kind of reactive approach. Not only does it lead to stigma, so sometimes students were coming to see me, they'd been sent to see me because they'd failed an exam and would kind of walk into my room and kind of sit like this in a very defensive way because they hadn't chosen to come and see me. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how we could invite students in earlier, make them think about that problem. I like that word, Sophie, that self-identification. And so myself and other members of my team started to do slightly different introductory lectures for year one, but also for year three, the clinical years. So for the year ones, it was very much suggesting to them that, you know, you're a subselected group of bright students 
And here at university, at the med school, we want you to have fun, enjoy your sports, don't stop playing the violin. We want you to realise that medicine is a real marathon, it's not a sprint. And if your work is taking over to such a point that it's not leaving enough time for anything else, don't just grit your teeth and work harder for longer. Think about what you might need to change. We have put some information, or at least we, before I left, we put some stuff on Blackboard with tips, with ideas, things that you can do. I have to say my belief is that the students rarely look at them. Um, but I do think that for the students who perhaps have realised it's taking them longer than their peers, they're scoring less well on the self-assessment to the peers or that they always do really well on single best answer but they don't seem to have got the head round how you organize and plan a short answer question um, and certainly the numbers of students at Leicester that we were seeing was increasing and increasing and increasing and it no longer seemed to be such a stigma and the words we were trying to use is you will hit bumps throughout the whole of your professional career that actually it's professional to ask for help and support um, I still think we have a long way to go and I still think that there are students who don't really get ident identified well enough and, and I suppose the ones I, I worry about are the ones that just scrape through their exams and maybe they pass everything till year four and then they're kind of hit with uh, really struggling to go back and collect together all the information from all the years of study, because it was very much learn for the exam, pass and forget. Yeah, and then and four, four years later, there's, there's a lot to remember for one exam, isn't there? So I, I think you've covered um, a really good point, just talking about how, you know, how broad struggles for students can be. It's not normally one thing, um, but over over the years, do you think there's been any change in what you've seen in academic support? So obviously these days, more students work on maybe laptops or iPads and, mm -hmm. and also, you know, social media can in the way that information's maybe um, the students find information on the Internet maybe is a bit different. Do you think anything's changed recently? Again, I think that's my link across from my career as a GP for 25 years versus academic support that I used to speak to patients who would come in and tell me that they wanted this treatment either because their hairdresser told them or they'd read about it in Women's Weekly and you know you had to very gently say well it's absolutely fine you want to read about your body your illness and your treatments but how about we think about some suitable resources you know, some high quality resources. And so the number of times I would speak to students who perhaps hadn't been doing so well in their exams. And sometimes they would say, oh, yeah, look everything up on Google. Or other times they would have so many different resources that it must have spent, it must have taken them ages to look at all these different resources. Maybe they weren't even properly using the resources that they had in front of them. Now, that might be because they had specific learning needs, because if you have 
uh, unrecognised dyslexia than to struggle through loads and loads of text is problematic. And I think you're right. I think there have been a variety of people in my uh, career who've really made a big difference to how I work and what I do. And one of them is Dr. Rakesh Patel, who I believe is now at Nottingham. And he's an excellent medical educator. And I went to one of his workshops, which was about why should the uh, medical educator be bothered about social media? And I went to this workshop and I am known as techno doc because I am so bad with technology. But once I started to realise that by being on uh, Twitter and having a look at Medscape and all the other places, that was where my students were going. And so I tried hard on Twitter to build up a series of resources and say to the students, I'm not perfect, but some of these places for you to look at, I think are great. I think are authentic. I think are valuable. Um, so I think that social media is one of those funny things, isn't it? The students are never going to stop using it. So therefore, why don't we help them to use uh, or to follow those best advisors um, on study skills, on assessment techniques. Then when you come back to social media in terms of what it does to students who feel they're kind of struggling a bit, there's no doubt that certain students end up with a sort of an imposter syndrome. They're at med school, but they don't feel they deserve to be there. They're passing the exams, but they're still worried about uh, how much better so-and-so does or so, how much better so-and-so does. And I think that can be added to by a lot of conversation on social media. In actual fact, though, it's not very different. So at Manchester, we used to have half-termly tests, termly tests that built up cumulatively. Um, and the results from those tests were always pinned on a, on, on a board. And so your name was there and it was very clear, not just to yourself, but to everybody else, what decile you were in. So I think students have always worried. But I do think the medical school itself maybe has to make more efforts to say, when you're doing medicine, the exams about your competence to proceed to the next stage. That if you measure yourself against somebody who may be going in a career direction of being a radiologist versus somebody who may be going in a career path to palliative care, you will have different skills, different abilities. And I think one of the things about academic support is not only should we in the early years be trying to give permission to those students who've come to do medicine but never wanted to do it, to have the opportunity early on to recognise that and transfer to a different course. But we also are duty bound in the clinical years to be working with students and talking to them about the way they study, the way that they're able to interact with patients, how they work as team workers, to make them reflect on which direction might suit them best for their career choices. Absolutely. Yeah, some some really important 
insights there and reflections on you know student support and the things that students are struggling with uh, over the course of, of their, uh, their their degree perhaps we could just come to the final question about what would your advice be for any student any stage uh, in their course who feels that they've perhaps still not quite got it right when it comes to their studying or they're struggling to keep up feeling that they're they're falling behind what would your advice be to to that sort of student I think it would be several it would be certainly go and uh, seek appropriate help and actually if you go to a good academic support unit then the people there should recognize if your problem is more of a pastoral nature or a health issue nature so in many ways it doesn't matter too much where you go for help um, because if you want to be involved in academic support you have to be good at directing students to appropriate help that you have to be prepared to put some work in yourself you have to be prepared to start reading and understanding about the value of uh, spaced practice or written recall or verbal recall practice. Um, with the, the more, the students who are perhaps struggling the most who come and see me, I would not go through all sorts of different study skills for them. I would probably, from my assessment of them, get them to try one thing for a week or two. And you're always looking for something that will hopefully give a, a quick goal, a quick win. Because you want the students to recognise that it's hard to change, but if they do make an adjustment, it can be quicker to learn. It can be more fun to learn. It can be easier to recall. And one of the reasons over my career I've been so keen on proactive work for the academic support unit is that if I end up seeing a student who's failed multiple times, then before you can even start talking about study skills, you're ending up rebuilding somebody's confidence, helping with their low mood, helping with their anxiety. And I don't want it to get to that stage. So certainly for the students, read about study skills, but maybe take advice about where the best places you can go to to look at study skills. Be prepared to do some of the hard work yourself. Be prepared to fail so be prepared to try making a change to your study skill even if two weeks later you and your tutor decide maybe that one doesn't work for you let's try a different approach brilliant i think that those are perfect take-home points for for our listeners thinking about their own learning journeys and if there are aspects that they're struggling struggling with so i think i think that brings us really nicely to, to the end of the episode and just yeah to extend a huge thank you to, to you jane for joining us this evening and for sharing a real extensive experience and expertise in providing academic support for over i can't do the maths but since 1995 <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah and i think some you know, really valuable points to take away that it very much is sort of encouraging a proactive approach and a, a, a normalisation almost to it being okay to struggle and find things hard, but to 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 act and, and seek for support when when that's when that's happening. 
So we mentioned right at the beginning of the episode about our competition. So in terms of what is the prize bundle for one lucky winner, well, courtesy of Yardcard, we have a selection of pocket reference cards that slot nicely into your hospital ID holders, a book provided by Zero to Finals, and a six-month subscription to QuestMed, which is a platform providing thousands of single best answer questions and flashcards. So Sophie, how can our listeners actually enter the competition? To enter the competition, make sure you like the post that we share on Instagram and follow us, Yardcard, QuesMed and Zero to Finals all over on Instagram for your chance to win the amazing bundle of goodies we've got on offer. For more information, just find the post on Instagram and all the information that you need to enter the giveaway will be right there for you. Fantastic. So, yeah, thank you again very much to our guest, Jane, uh, and also a huge thanks to our listeners at home. It's a goodbye from all of us. Bye. Uh, Bye. Bye. And if you have any ideas for possible future episodes, please do get in contact with us either through our Instagram site or our Twitter or through emailing us at thehippocampuspodcast at gmail.com. 